Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It was a mix of bipartisanship and defiance. I wonder if you watched the State of the Union by President Biden on the address last night. It was quite an affair. Joining us with their analysis of uh, that also later in the program, we'll focus on some state politics. Donna Hoffman, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa, and her colleague there at UNI, Chris Larimer, also professor of political science. Chris and Donna in our Cedar Falls studio, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Again and again over the course of those uh, 72, 73 minutes last night, President Biden urging Congress to, in his words, finish the job, um, rebuilding the economy, uniting the nation, um, State of the Union aimed at reassuring our country, a country that is beset by pessimism, also our political divisions we've been suffering from um, for many years. He sought to portray our nation as dramatically improved from when he took charge two years ago, uh, from the reeling economy to one he says is prosperous with new jobs, uh, and also coming out of the pandemic. Uh, he referred to that a number of times, and references to the our democracy uh, surviving its biggest test since the Civil War. Following uh, his address, uh, Arkansas's newly elected governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, delivering the Republicans' response, telling Americans, Biden and the Democrats have failed you, and uh, Uh, showing a a sharp contrast between the two parties, uh, especially with respect to what she called the left-wing culture war. Um, Now, a good portion of this hour devoted to the State of the Union and the GOP response. We'll hear a few audio excerpts, of course, from the president, one or two from Sarah Huckabee Sanders as well. We'd like you to join our conversation. What moments stood out for you last night? Uh, What did the president's words tell you, uh, the tone, uh, the tone, as far as we can tell as viewers in the House chamber, about the state of our politics in this new era of divided Congress. 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. In just a moment, Chris and Don, I want to ask you uh, what stood out, but here's uh, let's uh, let's uh, listen to one excerpt first of all. Um, he listed several items. The president, uh, where he worked with the party um, uh, over the past two years, he highlighted laws uh, in a bipartisan. What did he say? Something like three hundred different bills passed in bipartisan fashion. But he highlighted the one point two trillion dollar bill on infrastructure, uh, the boost to semiconductor manufacturing and uh, electoral reforms. Let's listen to him telling Republicans who voted against the infrastructure law that he'll still be there at the groundbreaking for projects funded in their district. We're seeing these field of dreams transformed to the heartland. But to maintain the strongest economy in the world, we need the best infrastructure in the world. Folks... As you all know, we used to be number one in the world in infrastructure. We've sunk to 13th in the world. The United States of America, 13th in the world in infrastructure, modern infrastructure. But now we're coming back 
because we came together and passed the bipartisan infrastructure law, the largest investment in infrastructure since President Eisenhower's interstate highway system. And I mean it sincerely. I want to thank my Republican friends who voted for the law and my Republican friends who voted against it as well. But I'm still, I, I still get asked to fund the projects in those districts as well. But don't worry. I promised I'd be a president for all Americans. We'll fund these projects. And I'll see you at the groundbreaking. Okay, a little dig there at Republicans who voted against infrastructure. Some humor last night uh, with the raucous atmosphere as well. Chris, let me start out with you. Uh, what stood out for you overall? Well, I think just that it was a, a speech that was obviously focused on economic issues. We've we've seen for President Biden, and even when he was a candidate, that he seems to enjoy uh, speaking to what you could consider, I guess, middle-class, blue-collar economic issues. That was a big focus of it. I actually thought that line about see you at the groundbreaking probably would have been one of the more memorable lines of the night if there had not been um, some of the other back and forth that we saw mm-hmm. uh, throughout the night. But overall, you know, I, I went into this uh, the speech last night trying to get a sense of would the speech move public opinion? And, you know, yeah. we've seen with, with other presidents that public opinion rarely moves. Uh, you know, if you look at approval reigns over time, the last couple of presidencies, there hasn't been a lot of movement on this, and I know this is Donna's areas of expertise. So I don't want to speak too much here, but um, you know, I, I, there's some enthusiasm you get the sense from from Democrats after the the speech, but it, I think the real question going forward is wh- what did this do to reset kind of the some declining support for for a second term for for the Biden administration? Yeah, uh, let's toss it over to your colleague Donna. Uh, well, what what do you have to say with your analysis? Well, so, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a typical State of the Union address, um, except that we've seen some uh, evolvement here, uh, or evolution, I should say, here with the um, back and forth. And while it doesn't quite match uh, Prime Minister's Question Hour in Great Britain, we're getting a little bit more uh, of some back and forth. And that's really, really super unusual, we should note here. Um and Biden um, rose to the occasion, we, we should add, and we can come back to that. Well, but, well let's, let's um, focus you know, on it. We've got, we've got the, the entire clip here of it. So d- perhaps you can dis- we'll hear it, but describe what happened for those who didn't quite follow it. It was, it was the most interesting moment from my point of view, and, and you're uh, likening it to po- the parliament in Britain is, is really interesting. W- what happened in, in a nutshell? The baiting. Well, so Biden, so Biden was um, talking about... Um, <clears throat> wanted to focus on you know uh, what's coming up in terms of negotiations on the debt. He wanted to um, talk about how some Republicans, and he even was very careful before he was interrupted, some Republicans, and he then when pushed, he even says, not a majority of you, just a few. And he said, I- I'm not going to name them out of courtesy, um, want to. And he said, uh, and I wrote the quote down, if I can find it. He said, um, some Republicans want to sunset uh, Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. And that literally is in a plan that those words, um, n- not the so- the Social Security and Medicare, but the sunset notion of all legislation after five years, in a plan that NRSC Chairman Rick Scott put together at the beginning of 2022 to go into the 2022 midterm elections. And so Republicans, um, audibly, multiple of them, um, uh, questioned that and Biden, you know, kind of let them have their say and their piece and did a back and forth with them. And, you know, I was watching this in real time and it took me a minute to even figure out what was going on. And, you know, Biden essentially painted them into a corner 
um, to say, all right, well, I guess we can agree that we're not going <laughs> to negotiate on Social Security and Medicare. And everybody stood up and applauded. And he mentioned it a couple of times. So there was a, a very much a back and forth there. It was ad-libbed yeah. on Biden's part. Yeah. He obviously is you know, quite nimble on his feet in these kinds of situations, um, despite Republicans' efforts sometimes to paint him as uh, a not being so. And you know, that's the thing we're talking about today. As Chris mentioned, we might have been talking about some other things. Um, the fact that Biden got heckled multiple times did not uh, he was unflappable in those um, in those uh, uh, periods during the speech, not just once, not just twice, multiple periods. Right. And he was and in this one in particular. He you, turned it. He turned it to his advantage. And, and clearly you see him as throughout the evening in enjoying it. Also in the interaction here, you just set the context so well, Donna, for that uh, moment, the back and forth here. Let's listen to it. One of the most testy moments of the evening, uh, warning that uh, some Republicans wanted to cut Medicare and Social Security or let them sunset to be uh, more exact. Let's listen to this approximately 90 seconds. It's so interesting. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks. The idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. <laughs> Folks. <laughs> so folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. Okay, uh, we've got a couple minutes before we go to our first break. Uh, uh, Chris, weigh in on that moment. We had, you know, you you could see in the in in the chamber too, um, the Georgia representative Marjorie Taylor Greene shouting, "You lie, liar!" Uh, many lawmakers booing, shouting, "No!" Um, uh, Chris, your your comment on this moment. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I would agree with Donna. Just, just the optics of that were so unusual, so out of the ordinary from what we expect from a State of the Union speech like that. And, I, you know, as I was watching it, uh, you know, I teach a class on public budgeting. And to, to say that Social Security and Medicare are off the table when it comes to budget negotiations, when it comes to talking about the debt ceiling, that has significant budget implications because we know that the federal budget – a significant chunk of it is tied up in mandatory spending. So if you're trying to control deficit, if you're trying to control long-term debt, and you're saying that things like Social Security, Medicare are off the table for those some of those negotiations, whether you're talking about the bu- the, the budget itself or the debt, mm-hmm. that means they're and, – and, and, the, and, and if the end goal is to try to get to some sort of level of balance or at least back to, to levels that are uh, a little more stable – that means you're talking about significant cuts elsewhere in a very, very small portion of the pie that is the federal budget. And so 
saying those things are off the table has enormous budget implications going forward, and it could mean some serious consequences for what you would call those discretionary programs, those programs that are negotiated on an annual basis for the federal budget. Okay. We'll have to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment with Chris Larimer and Donna Hoffman of the Political Science Department at the University of Northern Iowa. Join our conversation. What moments stood out for you last night in the State of the Union address? I want to ask Chris and Donna when we come back about the backdrop for this annual address, different from the two previous years with Biden as president, a a Republican speaker, McCarthy sitting mostly expressionless behind Biden, clapping sometimes, occasionally smiling. I want to ask about the overall tone when we return. 1-866-780-9100. Ben Kiefer, back with more of your Politics Wednesday in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band, and the entire symphony, June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Free Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer with Donna Hoffman and Chris Larimer, our two political analysts, um, uh, the, both of the University of Northern Iowa, uh, giving their views on last night's State of the Union address uh, by President Biden, his uh, first uh, before a divided uh, Congress. Uh, we're going to hear some more excerpts, also uh, an excerpt or two from the GOP response from uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee uh, Sanders. What moment stood out for you? one 780 1-866-780-9100, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the tone and the new setting here um, that, uh, that the president was faced with. Uh, Donna, what did you make of that? The backdrop, Kevin McCarthy there. Um, what did you observe there? Uh, of course, the vice president in, in the other seat behind the, the president. Sure. So the last time Biden gave uh, his a State of the Union, Nancy Pelosi was in that chair um, behind him. And of course, she was in the audience. She was even recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, but McCarthy is now in that speaker's chair. And that's an uncomfortable position for any politician to be in because you, you're, the camera is on you and yet you're not the focus of attention. Um, and so, you know, we, we saw some uh, shushing, for example, from uh, Speaker McCarthy as some of these outbursts um, from his his conference um, happened on the floor, and um, facial expressions, you know, that get dissect, dissected and, and and those kinds of things, but that's a you know difficult kind of position to be in. Now, as Biden noted at the top of the speech, um, you know, Schumer has one more Democrat in the Senate. The um, margins basically flipped, however, in the House. It, previously, Democrats had a pretty small margin. Now, Republicans have a pretty small margin. But nevertheless, that majority control is is very important. And so in talking about you know the importance of this speech, I mean, one of the ways in which it is important is the president tells us what his agenda is for Congress for the coming year. And when that dynamic changes in the House, especially the House because it's majoritarian, um, you know, much of what Biden talked about, he's talking about to frame kind of going into his reelection, likely. Um, but he, um, you know, is not going to get many of the things that he talked about um, from the Republican House. Now, having said that, presidents don't get everything they want ever, even when their own party controls both chambers, because that's not how it works. And that's not how we should even want it to work. Um, and so, you know, some of the value of a president as having 
um, a uh, chamber controlled by the opposition party is they serve as your foil. And Republicans stepped right into that yesterday. You know, uh, quite frankly, had Republicans sat on their hands as, and, and, and behaved normally uh, in a speech like this, um, we would probably be talking about a lot of different things today. Mm. Uh, Biden responds well to interaction. Um, he gets a little twinkle in his eye uh, oftentimes. Now, this also can make him misspeak sometimes as well. Uh, but he did not do that last night, importantly. And um, and he does empathy and optimism very well, kind of normally. But especially when he's kind of having a back and forth and a give and take, he really rises to that occasion. And he probably wouldn't have done that had he not had kind of some of the the interactions um, with that audience. Because, again, normally this speech is um, a pretty formal delivered before an audience. And yes, in, in the past, we've seen, you know, the seesaw clapping and, and applauding and that kind of thing. Um, but this is really a, a, a measure that that has evolved. Um, Trump really made the speech much more formal, some reality TV kind of aspects to it, especially yeah. in his last one where he awarded uh, Limbaugh with a medal and you reunited a military family. Um, the, really, uh, that evolution of the speech, which, um, you know, apparently we're going to keep, uh, you know, with uh, more interaction. And, um, and, and so, you know, it, it was a calculated misstep, I think, in, on the part of uh, the Republican uh, Party. We also know from news reporting that um, McCarthy had a meeting with his conference before this and reminded them about the rules of decorum. Um, but that obviously didn't um, have much of an effect. That also may signal, and we know this going in basically from the speaker's vote uh, earlier in the year, um, that, that McCarthy has a, a, a tough job with this particular conference um, in keeping it together. And they don't have very large margins. George Santos uh, could potentially go away. As we know, people resign for various reasons, even die in office, and he doesn't have a lot of cushion there. And so, you know, this also signals that McCarthy has a a really difficult job. Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned George Santos. It's interesting in the news reports we see that Mitt Romney, before the address, had a conversation in passing with Representative Santos, and uh, uh, it was uh, reported that um, uh, Senator Romney said, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be in this office uh, to his fellow Republican in the House. Interesting uh, there. Uh, on McCarthy, uh, before we go to callers, uh, Chris, any, any comment on that? Because that was really interesting to watch McCarthy's facial expressions and, and then have Donna explain what the shushing was about there. Because that, that again, is another indicator of the division within his own party and, and the task before him in um, in um, in leading uh, the House Republicans. Yeah, and <clears throat> as Donna said, it, it, you know, it's likely going to be a difficult task going forward. It's clear that Republicans, uh, many Republicans are set, uh, you know, on uh, pushing back against anything that comes from the Biden administration going forward. And so does that just mean that we're at a point of complete gridlock? And, and to, get, to get it back to, you know, discussions about the budget, when you're talking about the debt ceiling and those, the quote, extraordinary measures that the Treasury Department has put in place, those expire in June. So if if Speaker McCarthy was having difficulty in terms of relaying a point about decorum for a State of the Union address, what does that mean going forward for those discussions about the debt ceiling? Yes, there were there was an agreement last night about Social Security and Medicare, but what does that mean for the rest of those discussions? Because a default on the debt ceiling would be catastrophic to the U.S. economy. And if that caucus is not united on what that those negotiations look like, if the, if there are members of the Republican caucus who are willing to 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 
push it to that point, there would be serious consequences, just as there were in 2011 when the U.S. nearly defaulted on the on the debt ceiling on on the on the government debt, and there was a downgrading of U.S. credit rating for the first time in U.S. history. So, I think what it showed last night is that there are going to be very serious discussions going forward within the Republican caucus for Speaker McCarthy, and it, it's unclear. What that's going to look like, uh, and how much certainty there is going to be going forward, with uh, particularly on the the budget itself. Yeah. And I will say before we go too far, if anybody's interested in the State of the Union, Donna is very humble, but she has literally written the book on the State of the Union address with her colleague Allison <laughs> Howard. So if anybody's interested, they should check that out. Okay. Uh, let me though chime in here to what to what uh, Chris said related to um, the debt ceiling and McCarthy. Um, if you go back to 2011. Uh, John Boehner was speaker at that particular period of time. And those um, dynamics uh, were significant in the fact that he uh, he was no longer speaker. Um, And so, again, McCarthy is in a difficult situation because one of the the things that historically we expect a speaker to be able to do is to deliver their their conference or their caucus um, on these kinds of important votes. And um, Boehner wasn't able to do it. um, And it's not clear that McCarthy is going to be able to do so either. Okay, um, talking about what the the president uh, had in in store for his uh, the second two years of his terms, he, he term he called for congressional Republicans to work with Democrats and his administration. Uh, so many points we won't get to this hour: expanding access to opioid related addiction treatment, uh, strengthening the fight against fentanyl trafficking there linked with the southern border, uh, blocking overcharges on items like resort and airline fees. That was interesting. Also uh, commenting on. Uh, commending Democratic laws that passed without Republican support and pledging to veto several of the policies um, favored by some Republicans, including uh, a nationwide abortion ban. We heard that. Also, uh, a repeal of a bill. He said he would vote, a veto that caps the price of insulin for Medicare recipients. What did you hear in last night's speech? What jumped out at you? 1-866-780-9100. Let's do go to the phones. Bill is with us in Rock Island. Hi, Bill. Thanks for listening uh, across the border there. Well, hello. How are you today? I'm just fine. What's what's in uh, in, in your in your thoughts right now? Uh, you know, I think it was really interesting last night. You know, just with a lot of the fanfare coming from the Republicans, and I'll and I'll call it fanfare. This seemed a lot like a like, like a sporting event. You know, <laughs> they couldn't just let the man talk, and normally. I, I don't really like Biden. You know, I drive a pickup truck. He drives a Corvette. We're two completely different people. But, you know, the Republicans really need to give Biden a little more of a chance, especially when he's talking. You know, let the man speak. Yeah, so, you know, none of this boo, you know, and who and all this stuff. So, you know, you sound like you're just at a football game. So you're in and you're in Kevin really, McCarthy's you're in Mc, Kevin McCarthy's camp shushing shushing the, uh, the 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 audience out there, the Republicans. I guess. Well, well, yeah, you know, you, you know, and then at the same time, I feel like they should be able to speak up, but you know, speak up with something a little more intelligent than just boo. You know, it's uh, you know, we're not at a talent show or anything like that. And so I just wanted to I just wanted to add that. And uh, so thank you very much for your time. And, and, and just again, I will say I drive a pickup. He drives a Corvette. We're two completely different people. But I would let him I would let him speak. All right. Thank Bill in Rock Island. For thanks for listening. Thanks for your input. Let's go uh, right away to Randy in Iowa City. Randy, what do you have to say? Welcome. Well, I think the Republicans accomplished a lot last night. They pretty well gave lie to the idea that Joe Biden's senile. 
They showed he's willing to engage and defend his record. That I think it's pretty clear he's ready to run for a second term and that they have significantly coarsened the political process by, I think, just like the previous caller said, turning this into a sporting event, that they can't sit still and let the man speak. Their position is pure disruption, and Kevin McCarthy wanted to be Speaker of the House in the worst way. He's accomplished that. (laughs) Randy in Iowa City, thank you so much for your comments, sir. Paul in Algona, let's go to you. Uh, Welcome. Hi, right, Ben. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Mr. Larimer, you mentioned uh, the debt ceiling negotiation and that uh, since Social Security and Medicare are off the table, discretionary programs are at the chopping block. I, uh, I uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, you failed to mention uh, the prospect of raising revenue. Uh, could you speak to that, please? Paul in Algona, what about that, Chris? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, that would be the other way to offset if if the federal government, if lawmakers are interested in, in getting back to balance or at least getting back somewhere close to balance where deficits are roughly 3% of GDP or if you're talking about bringing down government debt as a percent of GDP, you know, that is an option is to revenue side of things. When you're talking about, you're talking about essentially raising taxes and increasing taxes on different sectors of the economy. President Biden talked about the Inflation Reduction Act last night in terms of the the minimum corporate income tax of 15%. He talked about raising taxes on uh, wealthy Americans. That Those would be things where that would increase the revenue side of things. Um, I mean, another th- side of it too, last night, President Biden did talk about negotiation, uh, Medicare being able to negotiate over prescription drug prices, right? That would bring down the cost of Medicare as a mandatory program. And so that could also get things back to balance. And so, and, and again, I want to be careful here. You know, we're talking about the debt ceiling versus annual budget negotiations. And so those are those are obviously two different things, but, you know, one leads into the other. If you, if you continue to run deficits, then that continues to run up the, the national debt. But uh, Paul's absolutely right that that Revenue would be the other side of other side of this. Is just tax cuts obviously are become extraordinarily political, um, and you know the, the president has talked about some of his proposals there, but it would just be whether or not those would get through a divided Congress. It's Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Ben Kiefer with Chris Larimer, you're hearing just there, and uh, Donna Hoffman, uh, both in the political science department at the University of Northern Iowa. So glad that they are joining us uh, this hour with their analysis of the State of the Union address by President uh, Biden. Let's hear a little bit of the response from the newly elected Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders delivering that response to Biden's address, telling Americans, Biden and the Democrats have failed you. And she focused on the difference between the two parties. Whether Joe Biden believes this madness or is simply too weak to resist it, his administration has been completely hijacked by the radical left. The dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. It's time for a new generation of Republican leadership. Upon taking office just a few weeks ago, I signed executive orders to ban CRT, racism, and indoctrination in our schools, eliminate the use of derogatory term Latinx in our government, 
repealed COVID orders and said never again to authoritarian mandates and shutdowns. Donna, what did you think of uh, the governor of uh, Arkansas's response there, her characterization of Biden, for instance? Well, you know, listeners have to decide if that comports with the reality that they just saw. So, you know, as she put it, the choices between normal and crazy uh, listeners, I mean, that's not necessarily wrong. Listeners have to figure out which side they think is normal and which side they think is crazy. Um, so she presented that in really stark terms. If you watched Biden's speech and you listened to her speech, uh, you know, we normally think of that as a response. And this isn't um, this isn't just true of Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, this is typically true with this kind of uh, format. Um, they have to craft this speech ahead of time. Um, it wasn't a response. She was not responding to Biden's speech. She mm-hmm. was responding to kind of uh, her view of um, the the state of things in, in terms of the country. And um, and so it can cause a bit of disconnect if you're watching the speech of the president and then you go to the response, such as it is called. And we should note here that this is there is such a thing called the response curse, more or less. Um, in which this is a very difficult speech to give. It is um, not, and you know the the out party always tries to pick a quote unquote rising star to give this, um, but very few of these kinds of speeches are usually deemed to be a success after the fact. And that's not a knock on the people who deliver it. Really, it is really just that when you compare it to what the president has just done. It's an apples and oranges type thing. So you don't have an audience to respond to. You're in um, uh, you know, a, a room typically somewhere or maybe outside mm-hmm. um, where you're not getting a crowd to feed off of any kind of emotion. You're delivering prepackaged remarks, which, of course, the president is, too. But but prepackaged remarks that may not actually gel very well with what the audience has just heard uh, from the president. So this is a really difficult speech to give in that sense. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican or a governor or a member of Congress or whatever the case may be, you are following the president of the United States making, uh, you know, the most major speech uh, in, a, in a typical year, barring some kind of crisis, typically. Right. And we have less than a minute, to, uh, Chris, your comment on Governor Huckabee Sanders' response in a nutshell. Well, yeah, I would agree with Donna. You know, it was it was completely different in the rhetoric. You know, she used the term used the word crazy three times during that response to refer uh, to the to to the Biden administration. And so it was a very different tone and rhetoric used throughout that speech. And you have to wonder, does that do anything to energize Democrats? Because coming into the speech last night, there was a recent poll out that showed that just 37 percent of Democrats wanted President Biden, want President Biden to run again. That's down 15 points from. Uh, just before the midterm elections, that number is even down further among younger Democratic yep. voters. And so he had a but, fairly positive response to the speech. And then you have a very partisan re- reaction there. And you wonder what that does to enthusiasm for Democrats going into 2024. After a short break, I want to pick up on that point, what this says about 2024 and Biden as a candidate. Also, we want to get your thoughts on uh, some Iowa State House activity on education, health care and abortion access when we return. It's River to River. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. It's Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The day after President Biden's 
State of the Union Address for 2023, Donna Hoffman and Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa giving us uh, their views, uh, their analysis, 1-866-780-9100. If you'd like to join the conversation, I want to ask you about 2024, Biden as a candidate, uh, other takeaways you might have. But I also wanted to play another excerpt, uh, one of the... well, one of the highlights, uh, I, I guess we would say from last night's address, he stressed the urgency for Congress to pass the George Floyd Policing Act. Um, and we had the 29-year-old Tyree Nichols beaten to death recently uh, last month by Memphis police. Nichols' parents were in attendance. But what happened to Tyree in Memphis happens too often. We have to do better. Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. Help them succeed in keeping us safe. We also need more first responders and professionals to address the growing mental health substance abuse challenges. More resources to reduce violent crime and gun crime. More community intervention programs. More investment in housing, education, and job training. All this can help prevent violence in the first place. When police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable. Donna Hoffman, to you first. Um, is this something that uh, uh, this divided Congress can work on, or, or is it more of a messaging uh, from Biden? This is, this is probably more of a messaging. And I'm not sure on this clip if he went ahead and said this, but he did uh, about 12 times talk about, and it would certainly go with this if he did, um, he said, finish the job. Okay. Yep. So he used that phrase over and over again, finish the job. That was one of the themes of the speech. And in framing things, you know, in that way, he can highlight things his administration has done and point out to Congress, but also to the public, where else we need to go. And then he often added that finish the job. You know, we're, we're speculating uh, about Biden's intentions for 2024. And, um, you know, we expect him probably to announce that he's running uh, sometime relatively soon. And, you know, that may be a a theme for his reelection, finish the job. Um, I haven't finished the job, you know, reelect me to finish the job. And so that was one of the the major points there. But, you know, this particular speech gives the president the opportunity to highlight to Congress, yes, the things I want you to do, but more importantly, to highlight to the public uh, the things the president wants Congress to do. And then he can come back and say, here are the things Congress hasn't done. And that also takes place in this speech as well, but it can take place in other forums like an election campaign as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, your thoughts, uh, Chris, as you watched last night, uh, Biden deliver those words uh, with uh, the parents of uh, Tyree Nichols, a uh, president, uh, president in the audience. Yeah, obviously a very emotional part of the speech. Um, and, you know, it, to your question about you know what happens going forward with this Congress, I think you know that's there's a big question there about uh, about police reform. He talked about it in terms of training uh, for more training for law enforcement. I think you know again it's it's just going to trying to understand how this divided Congress is going to work. I don't I don't think we yet know what that what that's going to look like as until policy proposals start coming through. And the president has said. You know that he's gonna his budget's gonna be released in early March. The Republicans in Congress have said the same thing. So I think that's when we're gonna start to see how these how some of these negotiations play out. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to our phones. Uh, Dan is with us in Atumwa. Welcome to the program. Thanks for listening, Dan. What's on your mind? Hi. Uh, yes, uh, I do support Biden, and um, he's always mentioning talking about big projects, uh, using thousands or increasing thousands of jobs. 
and where are all these people going to come from to do these many skilled jobs, construction and a lot of things, uh, because we're looking for hired help all over the country. Yeah. That'd be all. Thank you. That's a good question, uh, Dan. And and, uh, I don't know who, Donna or Chris, if you can go into this, this is tied to uh, the sort of southern border crisis or lack of immigration uh, reform, which was addressed last night, too. And Republicans and Democrats have very different views on the southern border crisis. And um, (laughs) I mean, do we have any chance of a divided Congress coming together to overhaul immigration policy at all, Donna? Uh, No, I don't think so. But there are other things that speak to um, Dan's uh, question as well that Biden did talk about and things like training and um, uh, community college. You know, he highlighted his wife, um, First Lady Jill Biden, and her work in higher education, specifically in community colleges, training programs, that kind of thing. So there's two kind of elements here to to Dan's question. There is, you know, do we actually have enough workers um, is one thing that pertains to immigration, um, particularly. Do we also, though, have enough skilled workers? And that pertains to kind of the other thing that I highlighted that, that Biden also talked about. And those those two things are very real concerns in terms of, you know, unemployment is, is as he noted, at a 50-year low. Um, yet we have all of these job openings, uh, skilled jobs that people need to be um, trained for mm-hmm. that may be moving from other industries, other manufacturing um, and then, you know, the lack of uh, visas coming in from uh, other countries has been a part of the pandemic as well, um, skilled workers in, in that regard. And so this is, a, I mean, it's a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, quickly, before we move on to uh, some quick hits on, on state, um, our state legislature politics, um, uh, Chris, what did this tell you about Joe Biden uh, as a candidate for 2024? Do you think most Democrats uh, had a sigh of relief when they saw well, the energy that he he brought, uh, the engagement that he took on, uh, you know, Republican opposition in the last night. Yeah, I mean that the immediate reaction among Democrats that you're hearing so far is is fairly positive, and in particular that the the interaction with Republicans, as Donna said earlier, helped. Um, as I mentioned before the last break, there was some polling that came out in late January that suggested that enthusiasm among Democrats had been dropping fairly dramatically since the midterm elections for enthusiasm for President Biden to run for a second term. I'd mentioned that just 37% of Democrats in this one poll said they wanted him to run again, which was down from 52% in the just to just before the midterm election. Uh, among voters that are under the age of 45, just 23% said that he should run for re-election. It was at 49% for voters who are over 45 and older, but that was down nine points from the midterm election. And his approval rating is still overall among all adults is still in the low 40s. And so there is a there is, you know, to some extent declining enthusiasm for a second term for the Biden administration. But then you have a speech like last night where the interaction seemed to help. He showed enthusiasm. There was a positive back and forth. He was able to turn it on important policy discussions. Mm -hmm. Now it is now the question going forward is, okay. now are are, do 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 Democrats feel a little more comfortable? Was that drop in enthusiasm just uh, fleeting a little bit? Was that temporary? Were they looking for something from the Biden administration or have they generally moved on to a new candidate or just wanting someone else? And I think we'll know more as the, as as we get into spring and into summer. Mm-hmm. And then I might add here that that when you actually look at Biden's legislative record, um, it's actually quite good. You know, one of the things in my own research that I do to, to gauge this, because there's a lot of ways to gauge this, is to look at what did the president get accomplished in the year following this speech related to his legislative accomplishments 
And, you know, typically presidents maybe get 40 percent of, of some or, or most of what they want. Um, that's an average going back to, to LBJ. Um, Biden got about half of, of what he asked for this year. And the year before that, um, it was uh, about 20 percent. But that speech was late and it was after the American Rescue Plan was done, too. So when you look at Biden's um, accomplishments and he highlighted many of these last night in the speech, because that's one of the things you do. He actually has a lot of things to stand on. And especially with the infrastructure, um, it's bipartisan. But also those things come to fruition slowly. And as he mentioned, I'll see you at the groundbreaking, right? He can go around the country and highlight those for another year, at least, uh, if not longer than that. And um, and we have seen him do that. He did one with Mitch McConnell in Kentucky over uh, yes, the holiday period, I believe it was. Yeah. And, you know, and, and those are quasi campaign events. Those are ways to get out to the public. We know that, you know, after a State of the Union address, presidents usually hit the road. Biden's going to Wisconsin today to talk at a. Uh, I believe it's a manufacturing uh, plant, but he is highlighting uh, some of the key things from this speech, and he'll continue to do that. And so it's, you know, when we think about the State of the Union, it's not just about one night, one speech. It's about the lead up into it, the things that are that are previewed, the speech, of course, itself, and then the reaction, and then how presidents use it um, going forward, and then also how the media covers it, um, you know, actually for the next year, because these are touch points that the media can come back and say, you know, this is what Biden asked for. Did he get it? Or is he not getting it? Or where is it? Yeah. Let's spend the last few minutes focused on the Iowa legislature, a very active uh, first month of the 2023 uh, session. And, of course, uh, Republicans uh, in, have increased their majorities in both chambers, a Republican governor in Kim, Rem- Kim Reynolds. Uh, Chris, to you first. Uh, I want to see what you have your eyes on, too. Let me just throw out a few things. Um, the latest news, Iowa anti-abortion groups, some Republican lawmakers starting to uh, push for a life-at-conception bill uh, that would ban all abortion in Iowa. We'll see where uh, that goes. We have uh, Governor Reynolds' uh, wide-ranging health care bill, uh, several items uh, that she highlighted in her condition of the straight, uh, state address last month. Uh, we also have her turning her focus uh, now that the school choice plan has been signed into law, shifting her attention to transparency rules in Iowa public schools. Uh, Chris, uh, we don't have much time, but what are you looking at in particular? Well, I, I guess I would st- start with just overall thinking about you know how the the tenure of Governor Reynolds fits in with other recent Iowa governors, and you and you think about the things, all the things you mentioned, and some of the other things she's done the last few years. She really is pushing some very big structural changes to the state of Iowa in terms of policy areas, in terms of the way that the the budget works. Right, last year they they pushed through the flat tax that restructures how in, uh, individual income tax is collected. Right, that's that's the number one source of revenue for the state of Iowa. That's been restructured. She's now obviously restructuring the way public education works in Iowa in terms of pushing this. Um, pushing through and signing the the private uh, the school choice so-called school choice bill. That's education is the number one expense in the state of Iowa. It's about three point seven billion dollars for K through twelve education. And now you know you mentioned some of the other bills related to education. So she is pushing things that are setting her up to push through some of the most serious and fundamental changes to the state. Um, and you know that's that's going to be part of her legacy as a as a governor of Iowa that doing these very big things very, very quickly. Um, you know, on, on the issue of abortion, I think that's one of the more interesting ones to watch because recent polling suggests that Iowans do not want change here, right? The recent polls are that I've seen say that 
you know, at least there was the, we have to remember there was the uh, amendment to amend Iowa state constitution to say that abortion is not protected in the Iowa constitution. 56, 58% of Iowans say they oppose that amendment. And yet we're seeing lawmakers push for changes on abortion. You mentioned that there is a proposal there to ban all abortions in yeah. Iowa. Some of those proposals seem to run counter to public opinion. So I think it's it's going to be interesting to see what the what the state legislature does on these and if they decide to continue to move forward yeah. um, on that particular issue. Yeah, and, and that gets to the question of why, right, Chris? Why, if, I mean, the Republicans can see polls as well as anybody else, of course. Uh, to you, Donna, um, we're awaiting uh, a court decision on Iowa's fetal heartbeat law. Uh, anti-abortion groups believe it's the right time, evidently, to start pushing for even more restrictions, this life at conception uh, bill. Uh, Comment on that and also where Iowa is or would be, should there be a life at conception bill that passes into law in the national context, because there are a few states now that ban abortion outright. Well, you know, the the picture nationally is a little bit murky in the wake of Dobbs in terms of what states have done, where there are exceptions or not, um, and also where they stand with legal challenges at uh, the state level. Um, because, you know, we're dealing with different states here. And so, you know, currently as it stands in Iowa, um, abortion is legal up to 20 weeks, but there is a 24-hour waiting period. There's mandatory counseling. There's mandatory ultrasound, for example. So restrictions are are present in in that regard. Um, If we remember going into the the 2022 election, um, you know, the Republicans running for the state legislature and Kim Reynolds in particular, who was running for re-election, typically did not say anything in a lot of detail here related to abortion Um, that was strategic and calculated the way they couched that was we're waiting for the court to act Um, and so you know the the Supreme Court reversed itself uh, earlier um, in December um, about the uh, or excuse me it was earlier than that Um, it was in June about um, whether abortion is a constitutionally protected right under the Iowa State Constitution and that it was due to Kim Reynolds' appointments to the the Supreme Court that had changed from the decision that had been a previous court. And so we're waiting to see on the injunction on the six-week ban, which a previous legislature passed, as to whether that will, uh, what the Supreme Court will decide in that. And again, they are still saying, even now, uh, officially, that we're not going to do anything legislatively, really, until that uh, comes through. But you do have legislators that want to make this uh, part of their portfolio, portfolio potentially. Um, so you do have some Republican legislatures in the state house, in particular, introducing you know a life at conception ban. Um, uh, other things that how does that abortion but rights Don, in the state. Yeah, Donna, but how does that fit in with, I'm sorry to cut you off, we're running a little short of time. How does that fit in with, with, with the why here, considering the polling that Chris mentioned here? You raise it for what reason you push, uh, you introduce, uh, propose even more restrictions, even though you know the polling also among uh, some conservative Iowans uh, is not there to back it. Well, Republicans won a state legislative contest in uh, November of 2022. Um, Again, they did not focus on this issue. Where we saw in states uh, this was a focus of campaigns, uh, reproductive rights largely won out. It wasn't a focus in Iowa. Iowa voters didn't make it a a focus. And so for whatever reason, um, Republican legislatures in the state house are comfortable pushing these more extreme bills because they did win an election. Will there be a backlash to these kinds of things? Question mark. We haven't seen one yet. Um, And so despite what public polling says, they also 
are serving their constituents. And, you know, that can be a a different, um, you know, kind of calculation on their part. They're comfortable doing that. Will Iowa voters in the next cycle um, take that into account? It's really difficult to say because they really haven't up to this point. And and Ben, to that to, to Donna's point there, I mean, this is this highlights what can be one of the difficulties of governing when you have unified control. There's no natural break in the legislative process. So these, if you have extreme legislation or legislation by members of your own party that it would normally be stopped in the legislative process, for Governor Reynolds, the challenge now is some of those bills are going to end up on her desk, and she's going to have to make those those decisions about what to do with those. Okay. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us and for input from our listeners on this Politics Wednesday. Chris Larimer, professor of political science at UNI. Donna Hoffman, likewise, professor of political science at UNI in Cedar Falls. Donna and Chris, until next time, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman with technical help from Phil Moss and Tony Daner. Tomorrow on the program, two Iowa State psychology researchers, this is fascinating, have developed a procedure that captures more information from eyewitnesses, also improves the accuracy of lineups in police investigations. That's tomorrow on the program. I'm Ben Kiefer. Hope you'll tune in then. (music) 